Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host, Salim Qasim. And on this week's podcast, I'm joined by Zora Kaku from Muslim Youth Helpline. Um, before I tell you a little bit more about uh, the Muslim Youth Helpline and the podcast, um, just thought I, I would go through the, uh, the, the announcements. Um, firstly, the TMV podcast Facebook page is still live. Um, I say still live, is, is live, it's there. It's a, sorry, not page, it's a group. Um, people have been joining, do continue to join the group. Um, and uh, please do feedback any thoughts or concerns or questions you have. I need to, to be honest, get back on like just messaging on there in advance before we have episodes and stuff. But um, we wanted to kind of create a hub where people can come together and, and, and discuss um, whatever aspects of the podcast that they want, um, feedback, ideas, or anything else. Uh, secondly, um, we've I've been mentioning it on on most of the most recent podcasts. But if you visit themuslimvibe.com forward slash support, um, you will be able to set up a a, a recurring uh, amount of 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 well any amount really um, uh, to support the Muslim Vibe in helping us to create content, and it would mean a lot to us um, in helping us. Uh, grow our team and create more fantastic great content for our audience in the last couple of weeks since ramadan we've gone from about um we're up to about 500 pounds a month in in recurring support from from people like yourselves thank you all so much um for your support but we still have a long way to go uh we want to bring in another video producer um asap because nuri is incredibly stretched um do check out by the way our video content on our um instagram and facebook and everything else um i think it's pretty good stuff i mean nuri does all the work so i can kind of say that i guess um but yeah we would really appreciate your support so coming back to the podcast um zora who has actually been on the podcast before uh we we talk about that in the introduction um but we are talking about mental health and specifically the muslim youth helpline and the calls that they have received and and there were some quite alarming stats that that they pushed out over the last few weeks and i thought it would be worth having this conversation and trying to get a bit of a better insight into um the problems that people are facing today especially young people um i think me and zora had a a a slight disagreement on the definition of young um but that's um neither here nor there i guess but yeah, uh, it was, or yeah, it was actually a really, really interesting and engaging conversation. I'm finding myself increasingly at the end of like almost an hour on these com- on, on these podcasts and and wanting to continue, but um, taking pity on you guys essentially. Um, but yeah, it's I, I think we can't have enough conversations about mental health, um, and and this one, in my opinion, was a particularly good one. So. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Zora from Muslim Youth Helpline. Salam, Zora. Salam, Salim. How are you doing? You all right? I'm good. I'm good. How's it going? Very good. Um, I don't know if you're aware, this is your second time on the podcast. Do you remember the first? What was the first time? When you were uh, on Muslims Like Us. Oh my God, yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember doing that phone call from my parents' living room. Yeah. I remember you, you were like, um, you were quite busy at the time and you, you gave us like a nice half an hour segment just to be able to yeah. chat about the show and whatever. But I like, it, it's weird now. A, a lot of people that were getting on the podcast have like been on before and I'm, I'm forgetting sometimes, but this one I remembered because it was just, I knew you from other contexts, but yeah. I was then like approaching you as this, uh, 
15 minutes of fame celeb um, yeah. who was on Muslims well, Like Us. Well, um, I certainly made it to the Z list, which is great. Um, <laughs> and, and I remember because that was actually early days of TMV too, because I think it was only about a year earlier. You, you, do you remember we were at this restaurant um, uh, just off Edgware Road? I was recording uh, some food thing. Yes. And you, but I was so we're going to do this thing, and I think it should be called the Muslim Vibe, and I think it'd be a really great website. That's what it was. <laughs> that was, I, I, you know, funny enough, yeah, like it, it's, it's, uh, it's been a while. So I think that podcast was probably like three years ago, um, and then, and then we we met when we were doing that filming at that restaurant like a year or two before that, and yeah. it's crazy, like it, how how things have kind of progressed and changed, and you've now obviously moved on and, and are doing work with uh, Muslim Youth Helpline. Um, and, and so this conversation is probably going to be quite different from the last one um, that we had on here. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the reason I, I, the reason I got in touch with you and wanted to do this now is because um, I've seen some of the messages that you put out on social media and I'm on the MIH mailing list as well. Um, and the emails, I, I mean, credit to your marketing team, the emails are quite uh, effective in that, like they're always, they always grab my attention and I, I don't read the whole thing, but I read enough to kind of get a sense of what's going on. But I wanted to use the opportunity to learn a little bit more about the landscape of, I guess, mental health and the experiences that you guys have on, um, on the, on, like on MYH essentially. Um, yeah. so I guess to start off with a couple of things that caught my attention, which, which aren't really a surprise, but are quite staggering at the same time. One of the things was that you guys have had an over over three hundred percent increase in calls um, to MYH since coronavirus started. There was a particular night when you had, I think, the majority or over fifty percent of the calls that you had were suicide related, um, and on the same night you also were not able to take a certain amount of calls. I think it was fourteen calls that you missed because you guys don't have the capacity and the staff and whatever else. Um, and and that's quite, especially that particular incident I think for me was quite striking because you're getting so many calls about suicidal feelings and you're just wondering those individuals who didn't make it through why are they calling what are they calling about if it was suicidal could, could that have been the the conversation that could have helped them or saved them or whatever or given them some hope um, but I think it kind of opens up a larger question as to where the landscape is right now of problems that people are facing especially from like a mental health perspective um in the uk and and what young people are going through because we all remember very vaguely being young and going through all these problems um but then as time goes on we have different problems and and we we kind of forget what it was like to be young and also i guess the other question is what are the age range of people that are calling into you guys I've asked, like, I've mentioned loads of different things there. I don't know how you're going to start and unpack well, it all. I have lots of things to say, starting off with, what do you mean used to be young? I think both of us are still young. I've got white hairs. I've given up on, I've given up on calling myself young. All <laughs> well, right. you know I got my first white hair when I was 18. So I feel like that is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but it's, I mean, the thing is, um, it's funny because Muslim Youth Help Plan is such a small organization. So just, um, I was super, super pumped when you just said credit to your marketing team because... Um, I don't run the social media, but I actually write every single email myself. So all oh, those really? emails go through to the mailing list. I personally write them and edit them myself, which is, um, so I'm really glad they are effective because I suppose the whole point is trying to show what's happening at the helpline. And that's always really hard, actually, because if you think about it, people call us um, anonymously, as confidential. Um, generally, we don't release uh, even things like case studies. We don't really tell people's stories till at least a year after they've contacted us because we don't want anyone to be identifiable in any way. And we do change their details 
details. So, um, you know, we might change small details of the story just to make sure that nobody is identifiable. Mm. So it's really hard in that kind of atmosphere to explain to people what we actually do, because the whole point is we kind of don't want to tell people. But we also do need to tell people. So it's a bit it's a bit of a weird one. But um, but generally, I think um, particularly in this last year, it's been particularly hard. So with, with coronavirus, lockdown, Ramadan being through lockdown, all of that stuff, it's been pretty hard. And I think we've gotten, I think, further than we used to, used to be in terms of the conversation on mental health and that people are talking about it, which is a great thing. Um, and I think the stigma is slightly less, the kind of shame and guilt that people feel um, slightly less. I, I would say it's still very much there, though. So um, in terms of what happened that night on the helpline, quite honestly, like Ramadan has been so busy for us that 313% started um, about a week before lockdown, maybe just over a week before lockdown. We suddenly started seeing this massive surge in calls and, and web chats and emails. And um, I'm not sure what happened in terms of, I guess people were just getting more stressed during that time, but the nature of the calls has changed through the last couple of months. So suicidal feelings that night, it was really hard. So I was, I was, um, helpline officer called me and said, look, we've got this case of this, this boy, um, you know, is this a safeguarding issue that we need to talk to the police about? And we made a decision on that. And I went and looked at what else was going on at the helpline at that moment and saw, um, how many calls we'd missed and why, why we'd missed them is, is there's just one reason. If we had more people answering the phone, then mm. we would have answered more calls. And I think when you run a service like this, it can be really tempting to kind of show the kind of, look, here is the great work that we do and we make a massive difference to people's lives. I believe we save lives. But then actually there's this whole other side that you don't normally show, which is it really hurts to know that those, it's really hard to sleep at night knowing that those people didn't get help. And um, I've used a helpline before and I had this really interesting experience um, a couple of years ago where I called the helpline and there was a technical issue and it basically cut out. So it just kind of said hello and then it, it cut out. And I remember what that felt like. And I think just knowing that I run a service where a client may have called in and then it just cut out, it's, it's a pretty tough feeling. And I think, um, I think just sharing that somehow kind of resonated with people. Um, and it's not a pretty story, but it's the truth. Um, I, I and I guess people was... really understood. I think, yeah, what was so striking about it, because you shared it across your own personal social media as well, but it, it, it just kind of, it hits home when you, when you do the numbers, right? When you think that, you know, we've had an increase in calls, we've had an increase in people talking about suicidal feelings and whatever. And on that one night, you missed 14 calls. Um, and, and I think it was, it, it seemed like quite an, uh, like you were tired of, of having to be in this situation and you kind of put that across and, and, people really kind of resonated with that. And, and I think it's just, you know, a lot of the times it's very easy and it comes with everything. Even when you look at charity abroad, um, it's very easy to care about a cause when you're watching the news, but then the second you turn it off, you kind of forget, right? And likewise, when, you know, when, when you're listening to a podcast with Zora from MYH talking about mental health and young people and all the problems, and we are both included in that young people bracket, um, but by your account, um, <laughs> Uh, it's, it's very easy to be mindful of it. But then the second that you kind of turn away, that just becomes someone else's issue and it's your burden then to carry on and, and take on. So I think, thank you for, for bringing that particular um, night to light because it, it, it did, it, and it's been on my mind pretty much ever since because I've just been thinking that actually 
with all of this stuff and like last week's podcast we were talking about domestic abuse there is most definitely and we had that on instagram live and the amount of comments that we were getting from people and people sharing stories of like realizing that their friends were being abused when they were younger by their parents and not even necessarily physically abused but just emotionally and whatever else like these conversations need to happen a lot more um and and so like i'm glad that we're, we're able to kind of do this finally um I mean, mental health has not had the, um, I suppose, the light that, it, that it's needed for a really long time. And I mm. guess it's just, um, sometimes I guess you try and sort of fumble through things and you're kind of okay, but for those who are not, and I think we're all that person at some point in our lives, right? At some point in our lives, all of us need help. So, um, and some people are not, um, I guess, I guess it's quite a privilege to have, you know, friends and family around. And even when you do have friends and family who love you and care about you, sometimes you just need to speak to someone who's not in your situation. Um, and, that, and that is really, I guess, what MYH is all about. Um, and I'm really glad people are talking about mental health through lockdown. It's been so interesting. I think suddenly everybody gets that actually, you know, if you, if you didn't have an issue before, suddenly you do. You're suddenly experiencing anxiety or different kinds of pressures. And so people really, I think, understand it a little bit more. Um, and it, it does bring that a bit closer to home when you're feeling it, I think. So then you can kind of relate to other people and say, oh, actually, I went through a little bit of what they're going through, which is interesting. I, I, I don't want to limit the conversation to just talking about coronavirus and lockdown and everything else. But I think that's also, as you mentioned, rightly so. Like, I know people personally who, when the lockdown was just, just about to start or just started, you know, the whole panic buying thing. I, I think a lot of that was not just people being greedy and hoarding, but actually it was the manifestation of their anxieties and their stresses and their worries about everything that's going on. And that's how they channeled it. They thought, let me stockpile as much as possible. I will be safe. And that's what made them feel safe temporarily. Um, yeah, fear. But, fear is a real big thing. It's a big driver. But this is what I wanted to ask you, is that like in terms of, and, and it's important for me because even I've seen with, with everything that's been happening with COVID and lockdown and, and, and everything else, I haven't really used the government's figures to be my indicator of what's going on personally. Um, I've been using pretty much my own network. So for example, at my local mosque, I know how many burials they're doing a week um, yeah. in contrast to before. So I know that we went from once or twice a week to eight in one day at the peak um which is which is unbelievable to, to even think about the fact and like even again so I, I you know one of my relatives passed away a few weeks ago it wasn't covid related but she's buried in a cemetery and since she's been buried there's been like several new graves that have been built and like yeah. the whole row in fact have all basically all of those um funerals have taken place in the last couple of weeks so anecdotally i know there's definitely been a spike whether the government figures say up down whatever and i can yeah. see um, now that there is a bit more calm, there are still a high number of deaths relative to kind of peacetime, if we can call it that. Mm. But it's um, it, it's given me an indication, at least like in my locality, what's going on. Um, mm. And so that's why I wanted to ask, I guess, you know, what from your experience are the issues that people are facing today, especially Muslims that are, that are calling you up? What are the what are the prevailing problems essentially amongst people in the UK? Muslims in the UK? Well, um, there are a few things. So in terms of the numbers, the top thing that people call us about is anxiety. So it's different types of anxiety. It could be um, if they've had a mental health issue, like a diagnosed di um, anxiety disorder, and it's gotten much worse. 
-hmm. or it could be people experiencing anxiety either for the first time or in a situation which to be frank it makes perfect sense that you'd be anxious in those situations so if you're worrying about your job your family a domestic abuse situation your friends um you've got i don't know um uh, a, a relative in the nhs for example are they going to be okay or people who are sick who you can't help which is very very strange it's a really weird feeling to know that somebody is sick and somebody who you love, somebody who, you know, it might be your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, who, um, who you would ordinarily be helping, but you can't. It's a really, really strange situation. So that's, that's the kind of anxiety thing. Suicidal feelings have been much higher than usual. I don't really know why, to be honest. Like, I'm not sure why that's coming. We used to have maybe one every two weeks for suicidal feelings, but we have multiple in a day now, which is, um, which is a big change. I'm not sure why, but that's something that's been coming up a lot. Abuse has been going up quite a lot too. So we've had calls from younger children, so say between 12 and 17, um, who have been wow. saying that they've been physically abused or neglected or all sorts of things at home. And those kids actually will call us, they won't call us, they'll message us on, uh, I guess using their mobile phones, just on web chat, because that's something that you can do. It's really hard to find privacy these days, especially if you're living with someone or if you're a child because you can't actually physically speak to someone on the phone because there's somebody in the next room who can overhear you. So those kinds of issues have been popping up quite a lot on the helpline. It's been, um, there's been a, a fair amount of financial um, stuff too. So for example, we've had this one call, we have this one call um, from a guy who, so he would generally go to food banks maybe once in a couple of months because um, they were trying to survive on his income. His wife was trying to get a job, couldn't find one and, his, and has been looking and they have um, a little daughter. And he would call us every now and then when he goes to the food bank because um, he'd be embarrassed. He'd say, look, I, you know, I feel really terrible about myself that I can't uh, provide food for my family because, um, you know, I should be providing because I'm the man and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and he'd feel really embarrassed and ashamed of himself. And he'd call us and just be able to sort of vent that a little bit. But during um, COVID, he lost his job. And so that's a whole nother. He's now going to the food bank really regularly. And it's not just a case of the money runs out towards the end of the month. It's kind of all the time now. So it's a really hard situation for people to be in. And one thing I'd say also is um, we've had quite a rise in complex cases. So things where, honestly, it's really hard to even know where to start. So um, I think the best example of that is a young uh, a girl who called us who's 17 years old. Both her parents are in hospital with coronavirus. And um, she's looking after an older sibling who is self-isolating because they've got uh, symptoms. So she's looking after them. And then she's got a younger sibling who's about 12 years old who has severe disabilities. And so she's looking after these two. And she calls because um, a few things. One is she said, do you know where I can find my local food bank? Because um, I don't have any, I'm 17, I don't have any money and I need to be making food for my siblings. So do you know where I can find a food bank? The second thing is um, she's in her A-level year and her teacher is going to be giving her a grade instead of her sitting exams. So she said, if that happens, um, my teacher doesn't like me and I think she's racist and I think she's not going to give me the grade that I deserve, which means I might not get into the university that I want to go to. So I don't know what's happening with my kind of my career and my employment prospects. Yeah. And then the third thing was, um, she said my mum's doctor, so a doctor on the ward um, where her mum is in hospital called and said, we don't think your mum's going to make it. And she said, I'm only 17. How do I make sure that my mum gets a Muslim burial? Like, what do I do? Because if they call and say she's died, then what? And she wasn't even, I mean, that is, a, that is a lot for a 17 year old to be going through. And to think that just two weeks before that, she wasn't dealing with any of that. 
that's a really tough situation. And the trauma she'll be experiencing from any one of those situations is hard, but she's got all three at the same time. So can I ask, when you, when you encounter a call like that, um, how, how do you, as, as, are you guys counsellors or listeners, what, what, what term do you use for the, the, the people that are on the other end? Well, we, what, the way we talk about it is we provide emotional support and signposting. So we do have professional counsellors at the organisation, but mm-hmm. because we don't, we don't sort of train everybody in uh, qu- fully qualified counselling skills, even though we, we basically run on a counselling model, so we do train people in counselling methods, yeah. but we don't have certification, so we can't really say that, that people are qualified counsellors. Mm-hmm. Um, but our helpline officers who run shifts, most of them actually are qualified counsellors. And I guess the whole point is with a case like that, you'd start off with safeguarding. You'd start off with, well, she's not on anybody's radar. Mm. She's really like, you know, nobody knows that she's going through all of this stuff. But see, what I was going to ask is how, how do you as individuals, um, I guess, detach yourself emotionally from that? Because it's like you're, you're dealing with one person's issues and then you put the phone down. Somebody else calls with completely different set of problems. How do you suddenly switch off from like worrying about one sister who's, you know, mum is is on her deathbed and who has anxiety and all these stuff. Like that must be really difficult. Yeah, it's really hard. And I've, I've got to say, so I don't take the calls myself. I yeah. used to, so back in the day, I was on the helpline for almost 10 years um, and I used to take the calls. So I know what it feels like, but our helpline, like the front line that we've got, our helpline officers are incredible people. And what we try and do is set up systems that mean that they're taken care of. I feel like in the organization, it works like this. We've got clients, and they are looked after by the helpline officers. The helpline officers are looked after by myself and the helpline manager. So we look after them. They can look after the clients. So what we do is a few things. One is as soon as you um, finish with an inquiry, so if you hang up the phone or you finish an email, you have to take the time to write down. Um, so we do a little summary on our, on our system. We don't, we don't keep like identifying information like you know, who people are or that sort of thing. But we just write a little summary of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's anything that we need to sort of take forward, so if there's anything where it's like it's complex, I need to talk to my manager about it or that sort of thing. Um, and they need to take that time and try and, and wait and do whatever they need to do in terms of self-care, self-care to feel okay to take the next phone call. But we also have um, a whole bunch of systems. So there's a buddying system. When you finish a shift at 10 o'clock at night, it can be really hard actually just even trying to switch your brain off to go to sleep. So we have a buddy system where people can call each other and kind of just debrief on the shift that happened. Um, and we currently have two people on the phones at the same time. So you can call the other helpline officer and say, well, I just got off this call and it's been pretty hard, as long as they're not also busy at the same time. So that's quite helpful. And then we have supervision. So every month, each helpline officer gets um, their own supervision session, which is essentially like counselling for them, mm-hmm. but it's more on a, with a professional sort of mindset so that they can think about how they're doing and whether they're okay. And then we also do group supervision. And that's to look at like, MYH as a whole and kind of say okay are there any complex clients we need to talk about anything people are finding difficult and often that's where um, we see some really interesting different things happen even in terms of policy for example um, and and I think I mean one thing that's on my mind from things like that is sometimes we get people abusing the helpline so they'll call and we get sort of either sex callers or people who call and say ridiculous things like you know can I eat pork is it okay and you know it's like a real kind of um, hoax call or something like that and we then kind of, we, in the group supervision, we can kind of collect, okay, well, actually, five different people have dealt with this. So we should come up with a policy that means that we can help to, um, to kind of combat that and make sure that our helpline officers are also not being abused. 
because we've got a duty towards our health officers. That's, mm. that's the biggest thing for me, for sure. So it's, I guess there's lots of different steps in terms of making sure we look after ourselves, hopefully. And um, on, a, on a broader, I, I, there's, there's two different things that I want to kind of go, go, go get to from here. So number one is, is the personal side in terms of your story and journey and how you found yourself as director of MIH. Um, and also the community, um, or the community, sorry, if I should pronounce my T's, um, the community uh, response and uh, approach to mental health and everything else. Which would you like to talk about first? I don't actually give people this option very often. The community. I'm so excited about talking about that, actually. Okay. (laughs) So, no, I I mean, I, I, I can preempt almost like your first response, but... Um, where, where do you feel like the conversation is at in the community space um, with regards to mental health? How how far along are we, if you know what I mean? And, and I think personally, and this is something just my own reflection um, on our time with the Muslim Vibe, is that when we started out, the reason that we started out, and, and like you, you might remember from that conversation we had like a few years back, was that we wanted to create something in the digital space for Muslims that would kind of help to... Um, hone in on a Western Muslim identity, look at, you know, issues that are facing young people, talk about social issues, talk about taboo things and everything else. And that's why being able to speak about domestic abuse, being able to speak about mental health issues and, and, and trying to normalize that and getting people to kind of appreciate that it's not just about, I'll read the Quran and you'll be fine. But actually, like, you know, you do need to speak to someone, you do need counseling, you do need whatever. Um, that's been it's been amazing to be able to be a part of that and I think that conversation is happening in some circles but the question is in, in a kind of broader sense and I guess it'll also come down to the response that you guys get from people how do people perceive MYH and the mental health space broadly in the Muslim community I think you're completely right. Like where we started from, where we came from, is a completely different space. And actually, I do think it's platforms like TMV who have been putting things out for years um, and just consistently raising the agenda of mental health issues that has really made a difference. And, um, you know, we've had things like um, Nadia Begum talking about her anxiety, doing a whole documentary about it, where people loved her because of her baking thing. Mm. And then she kind of had a whole thing on mental health and everyone sort of um, saw that and thought, oh, actually you can be super, super successful and also have a mental health issue. She had and a, it's okay to talk about it. Sorry, it was, she had a BBC series on anxiety. Is that right? Uh, it was, I think it was either a one or a two-part documentary. I think maybe yes. a two-part documentary about her anxiety. She has generalized anxiety disorder, I think. Mm. And um, that's what she was talking about. Which is really I, I think what was really, what was really quite shocking um, was that, because I watched only bits of, of the documentary. It was just happened to be on TV. Um, is, is the extent of her anxiety. Like, it's not like some mild anxiety. They've just picked someone and said, okay, yeah, you can talk about it. Like, like, she has some serious anxiety. Like, she broke down several times on the show when yeah. she was kind of reliving trauma in her life and everything else. And yeah. the fact that it's kind of affected and hindered her to, to such an extent. But as you say, it just goes to show that, like, you know, literally the most, or one of, one of the most popular and famous um, Muslim quote-unquote celebs of our of our day um can also be affected to such an extent right yeah and i think that that what you've just said is so important like having having all of us basically talk about our mental health like it's a normal thing to talk about it's so important for the next generation so i know whenever i do talks with um kids particularly so up until about 18 years old um if i mention that i have anxiety I'll get almost half the 
the group will come to me afterwards one by one saying, oh, you know, I've had this thing for a while. Do you think it could be anxiety? Could like, what should I do about it? And it's really interesting that kids will actually relate. If, and I think that's the thing about mental health is you open up a conversation. And what we need to do, I think, is to just be bold about saying, okay, well, I'll talk about it first. You know, my name is Zora and I have generalized anxiety disorder. And just kind of get that out the way and say, okay, well, now that I've said something, it's okay. It means it's okay for you to say something. And honestly, I think we all want to talk about it. Nobody wants to be alone with their terrible thoughts and demons. I think we want to talk about it. It's just we kind of need permission to. And it's like, well, what's the what's the kind of atmosphere that I can talk about something where I know I'm not going to be judged. And if somebody else is talking to you and they're talking about themselves, you know, they're not going to judge you. And I think that's really, really important that people don't see you as weak because you have an issue. So I, I'm, I'm probably one of the, the biggest culprits of this, but I, I, I think a lot of people struggle with that vulnerability, right? Taking that first step to show themselves as being human, as being flawed, as having problems. Um, yeah. and, and that's the thing. So, so what's interesting about what you just mentioned is that the second that you create that environment where you admit to being human, it allows others to also do the same. And as I said, yeah. like uh, right at the beginning, I'm the biggest culprit of this. Like I, I constantly live in that sometimes superficial space with people where I'm like, I don't want to, everything that's my issues, I, I, I suppress below the surface. Um, yeah. And it's, it's very difficult. And obviously, you know, I, I know there are campaigns and there are charities that also talk about men in particular and, and being open as men and being able to be vulnerable as men and, and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, and, and I think, you know, from a, a Muslim perspective, a lot of that also then comes down to culture um, and what we've seen and, and what we've learned and experienced through our, yeah. sort of our parents and our communities and whatever else. Um, Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt you, but question for you on that one. Um, oh one thing that one thing that I see a lot is so um, when I look at you know the Islamic traditions, for example. So we know a few things about the Prophet which kind of relate to this. So one is we know that he openly cried in his mosque and his home. Like he would, especially when he was grieving, he openly cried. Like he was a man who cried, and that was the Prophet. In a way, it's like that's kind of the Sunnah because that's mm. what we're looking at, what the Prophet did. And also, we know that the Prophet, um, in, a, in a more proactive kind of way, the Prophet received his first revelation when he was in the cave meditating, which means that before Islam even came along, that guy was in the cave meditating. And I wonder, like, why and how have we lost that kind of Islamic tradition? We have so many Islamic traditions and culture and yeah, all of this yeah. stuff. But where did we lose, like, I would love to know, like, how did the Prophet meditate? What did he do? How come I know how long his trousers were and I know what he ate for lunch and I have no idea how he used to meditate. I'd, I'd love to know. And, and that's a man. I just, I wonder how we lost that. So I, I think it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I personally feel that we are very selective in, in the, the, the sunnah and the tradition that we take from the prophet. And what I mean by that is that often we uh, almost superimpose our perception and understanding of the prophet onto the prophet. Do you know what I mean? So, so yeah. we use modern day standards. And again, I'm no expert in any of this stuff. This is just my own personal opinion. Um, you know that, but it's just for anyone listening. Because you asked me a question now, I feel like I have to <laughs> give a proper answer. But how I see it is that we use kind of modern day standards of, of masculinity and what it means to be an alpha male or whatever it might be. And, and we're projecting that onto the prophet. So when we see a narration of the prophet being harsh with people, we'll take that one. And we'll be like, yeah, look, the prophet rebuked this Sahaba when he said X, Y, Z. But as you said, when it comes to, and, and people do this all the time, right? Like even when you're looking at um, how the prophet dealt with 
disbelievers, for example, or, or whatever it might be, people will select the approach that they've taken in their own lives and be like, oh yeah, do you remember the time the prophet did that? Or do you remember the time the prophet did that? But we don't actually, we're not willing to embrace the full picture. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think that's what it is, to be honest, um, and, and why we've lost that. And, and it's so, I mean, it's, it's interesting, as, as you said, like, how, how did the prophet meditate? Why, why don't we have more people talking about the meditation of the prophet? And maybe we've just lost all the traditions, I don't know. But as you rightly say, there's so much that we can learn from those kinds of things and, and to be able to reflect on. But I think ultimately, um, as, long as, we're, as long as we acknowledge and are aware of the fact that we are inadequate in kind of, um, in ourselves, if that makes sense. Like we're, we're, we're always striving towards perfection. Um, mm. but, but that we're not there. But as long as we're constantly on that journey, we don't think, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm perfect as I am. I don't have to change anything yeah. done. That's the, yeah. that's the, the journey we need to be on, right? And you're right. And, and I think that, um, actually, when I think about it, I suppose one thing um, definitely to mention is I think even from the pulpit, like from scholars, I've heard so many people talking about mental health, so many like imams, scholars, Friday prayers, like during the khutbah, people talking about mental health, which is, it's really different to how it was five years ago, 10 years ago. So that's a really positive, like we're getting there. We're getting yeah. there. Yeah. But it's, it's, it, I, I still feel like, and maybe it's a generational thing, but I still feel like there's a lot of education that needs to take place. Mm -hmm. So amongst, I would argue, a younger generation, people are a lot more open. And I guess this is something we discussed just before the podcast, but I feel like things like Google have, for me, brought a lot of good, but also a lot of bad. So the good is that, you know, you can type in a bunch of symptoms that you're, you're experiencing in your life, be it physical or mental or whatever, and you can get a pretty good diagnosis. What's bad is that you can type in a bunch of symptoms that you're experiencing in your life and you get a diagnosis. Um, <laughs> and, and so I guess this is the other thing I have, I have to ask you is that, do you feel like with the advent of Google and social media and technology and, and, and so much more conversation about uh, mental health, do you think people are, are self-diagnosing and let's say you have like some micro form of anxiety, you do a bit of reading and suddenly like you actually snowball your own anxiety into like a proper disorder? Mm. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I've got two, two things about that. One is um, generally, I think, um, I think one way of looking at it is kind of people self-diagnosing. But another one is um, maybe what's happening is people are just becoming a bit more emotionally literate. And, and I use this phrase emotional literacy a lot, partly because I'm terrible at it. I'm really terrible at describing my own emotions. Um, definitely working on that in therapy. But um, it's, really, it's really hard to deal with something when you don't know what it is. And sometimes actually naming it really helps. So it might be that actually, you know, you're experiencing something that's like a panic attack, but you don't know what a panic attack is. So, you, you know, you're short of breath, you're this, you're that, you're, you know, your heart's racing. You Google it and you think, oh, I'm either having a heart attack or I'm having a panic attack. And actually, I'm not dead, so it's probably not a heart attack. Okay, so it's probably a panic attack. And then I guess what you're saying is then do I then go on and say, well, I have a panic disorder, for example, or something like that. Mm. But I guess depending on what people then do with that information, I don't see it as too much of a bad thing. So if you're kind of saying, okay, well, I've, I'd rather, I'd rather that young people name something and say I have something that feels like panic than not and kind of just deal with it silently and not know what it is for 20 years or something like that which happens to a lot of people. 
So I think that's a really um, important thing. Um, and the other thing is, I think just the, it's just it's like it's generally more accepted to talk about mental health. So where people may have been Googling their physical health symptoms before, they're now also Googling their mental health symptoms and things and actually connecting with other people online. And it can be it's, you know, pros and cons. It can be a good thing in terms of connecting with other people who are going through a similar thing that you are on forums or online or on social media. Um, I mean, and I know social media also has its negative side, and I'd say it's probably um, more negative than positive, but yeah. there is something to be said about people who are um, able to connect with, with others, which is, which is a good thing, I think. You also mentioned something to me just before, that the, the people that are calling you are, are now slightly younger. So I think you mentioned uh, 12 to 17, is that correct? Yeah, so average age is late teens. and late um, teens. In that couple of weeks i think our youngest call was 12 and our oldest was in their 50s maybe so it ranges so, a lot but but it's it, that's a the average is a drop from what it previously was yeah it used to be sort of mid-20s and it's now sort of late teens so i feel like a lot of people have the uh the thought that the advent of social media has given rise to to a lot more problems so you know we we, we talk about the society of instant gratification and like you know constantly looking at the likes and the fact that even platforms like instagram have taken out the the like count so you can't see how many people have liked it immediately on your page and neither can others they're Mm -hmm. trying to kind of that's from a mental health perspective to try and help people with dealing with this kind of constant need for um attention and for likes and everything else do you think though that given everything that social media has brought to us and this kind of created this subset of society and like a you know a, a second life almost type thing um do you think that that's the reason why young people are, are increasingly developing or uh i guess self-referring or calling your helpline um i'm not sure to be honest i think in terms of the actual rates of incidents um no one's really studying muslim mental health we in this country we've got loads of studies on ethnicity so pakistani mental health indian mental health bangladeshi mental health arab mental health but we don't have anything on muslim mental health um and that's something we're trying to work on also um because we, we it would be interesting to know whether rates of all sorts of things like anxiety, PTSD, are they higher in young Muslims than they are in other populations? And we've done some, some research, um, but it's not academic research. I think that's a bit of a gap that we need to look at. And I think people are looking at it, so it's a good start. So in terms of the actual incidents, I don't know if it's higher or lower, um, but in terms of why slightly younger people are contacting us, honestly, I think it's just because NYH is much more out there now. We've been doing a lot of work with schools and colleges, and so it just means that those people now are a bit more aware. And actually, really interestingly, we've had a bunch of people calling who said things like, oh, my mum or dad is either fundraising for NYH or knows NYH, and they put the leaflet up on the fridge or things like that, which is really interesting. Yeah, so if parents are actually, because I think what people are starting to understand is that it takes a village to raise a child. And NYH is just part of that village. So, you know, just because a child needs to call a helpline, doesn't mean that you're a bad parent at all it's actually just you're giving them another outlet another place that they can go to express themselves which is a good thing and so we're kind of part of that bringing up this child and so I think parents are starting to understand that and say actually when they see our service they look at it and they think oh that's something my kid could maybe use and that's really I think that's a really positive thing I think there definitely is a shift um, happening Um, and and it as you said it just needs in my opinion for more exposure more normalized conversation and and like an openness and there was in fact there was a a session that i once did um 
I think it was at a, was it a madrasa? And I was talking to parents about social media. So they always bring me in to like scare parents about why their kids shouldn't be on social media. <laughs> um, and what we had one session and, and someone asked about how to have these conversations with, with your kids about technology and social media and, and girls. So I was sitting with a bunch of dads who all had boys and they were like, you know, how do we start this conversation, whatever. And what was really interesting is that this, this question was directed to me. And I said, listen, guys, I, my, my daughter can't talk. She was at the time like less than one. So I said, I have no clue. Um, let's like, why don't you guys tell each other? Like what, you know, what, what, do you, what, what works for you? And um, what was fascinating is that people had such like innovative ways of doing this. And I found out later that one guy had developed a technique which wasn't like revolutionary or life-changing, but it was actually like a, a, cause I, I did another session a few weeks later and someone mentioned this who was a psychologist and he was like, oh, this is called the da-da-da technique. And I was like, oh, this dude like just came up with it. Anyway, so, so what, what he was saying is that, and, and there was two different approaches. So one of them, he would, he has three boys and he would go for a drive at night with his sons individually and there's it's dark so there's that kind of comfort and safety they're watching the road so there's no eye contact which makes it less kind of uh, confrontational and he just asks them so what's going on what are the problems you know how, how, how are you dealing with this that whatever how school are you being bullied all of those things and he goes initially and then another another dad for example does the same but he goes out for ice cream um with his kids uh, another one washes the car um so yeah. his kids actually being paid at the same time he's giving him a little like salary or whatever <laughs> But, but what's really interesting is that like, I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined that dads from the community would be number one, even mindful of this stuff of like having mm -hmm. to have these conversations. But then also it was so amazing to be in the room when people are sharing their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I learned loads of things. Like I've, I'm going to get my daughter to wash the car. I know that much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know how much conversation we'll have, but, but she's definitely going to wash the car at some point. But like, no, genuinely, it was it was so um, it was so nice to kind of see that that and and the fact they were concerned about it as well was was really different as well. Like you mentioned, you, you can't imagine parents of a different generation um, mm. sticking up a leaflet on the fridge. Mm. Um, but we 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 have come a long way, I think, at least in this space. For sure, and and those techniques are so interesting because that's exactly what youth work is about. Is about you know like when you've got a kid who's going through some trouble. You don't just sit there and look at them and talk to them. You take them out to tennis or a walk or football or whatever it is. And that's where the magic conversations happen. Mm. So those are really, really important things. And definitely dad's getting more involved is definitely a positive thing um, for sure. I'm going to make sure that when your daughter grows up, she gets a good salary for washing the car though. I don't <laughs> know. She's not going gonna... to be allowed to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um... It is really nice though. It's really nice that the community is getting involved in mental yeah. health and making it a thing that we can all talk about and like and, you even know. even the fact so, sorry to cut you off but even the fact that I was invited and I've been invited to like the same madrasa now a couple of times to talk to different groups of parents the fact yeah. that they're doing that and these conversations are happening um yeah. I think is is incredible because it's like we we need to start being aware of these these things we need to and and it's it's a dual perspective there's like the online safety stuff which is really mm -hmm. important and mm -hmm. safeguarding and everything else but then there's also just the basics of how to engage with younger people today because times are changing because technology has, has, has so rapidly changed everything around us like th there's a lot that kind of needs to be done for sure um for sure and i think one thing we're just about getting getting to grips with is is using outside 
qualified expertise. So I know that there are lots of people in the mental health sector who have a lot of really interesting like tools, tips, things for parents. I think sometimes it's about who's saying it and mm. it makes sense then for us to then take those resources to kind of like culturally translate them um, and give them to the community in a way that kind of makes sense and has credibility for them um, and to kind of keep delivering that to the community because that's the thing about MYH that's so interesting is like we were on the front line with phone calls and things like that so we know what's going on and yeah. then I feel like it's like a bit of an amana for us to then go back to the community and say hey community do you know we have these issues to prevent these issues this is what we need to do um, and that's really important and really I think some of the biggest things are around things like isolation and I think our, our, our next generation is more isolated than ever before, which is so interesting because we're at a time where we feel like we're more connected than ever before. But I think in the amount of addictions, um, particularly things like pornography addictions, we see a lot of isolation, a lot of people who are struggling with themselves. Um, yeah. And you kind of want to be there for them before to kind of prevent issues, but even if they're going through issues, to try and build up their resilience so that they can get through it. For sure. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up addictions because I was actually, I was going to move on to talking about that. And you're going to have to help me out with this one because there was a, a, a fundraising dinner for MYH that I, I came to like a few years back and, mm -hmm. and you had a bunch of stats dotted around the room. I don't know if you remember this. Yep. Um, one of the stats I believe, and it, I hope I've, I've remembered it correctly and haven't just made this up in my head, but one of the stats I believe was that substance or, or there's just as many cases of behavioral abuse as substance abuse or more i can't remember do you know what yeah. you're on the helpline uh, we get more um more behavior addiction than we do substance addiction and it's very interesting because over the years we've had to change our training we used to train our volunteers mostly in things like yeah. drugs and and now we do most of our addiction training on pornography addiction and then substances are like a minor part of it. It's so, completely different. So this is this is what I find fascinating is that is that I remember back in the day, um, MYH when I was a kid, because MYH has been around for about nineteen years now, I think. Yeah. And, wow. and and I remember when I was a kid, MYH was like always like, Oh yeah, once you become a, an alcoholic or you start smoking weed and you can't stop, that's when you call MYH. Um, right. Because cause that's, what, that's what you're associated with, right? You fall off the wagon and then MYH is there to kind of save you and all these other services right. and whatever. But what's really interesting and, and, and why that, that fact stood out to me is that you were, I remember because on the day we, we had a conversation about this and you were saying that even things like phone addiction, so, yeah. so you've got, you got pornography addiction then just like also kids or, or young people or just people generally not being able to pull away from their phones. And, yeah. and, and I, I've read stuff in the past about specifically younger people struggling to sleep at night because of the notifications on their phone. And again, that like that need to be in the know. So yeah. the, the second their phone buzzes, they're up in a, in, in a heartbeat because they need to know what's been said or what's been posted or whatever else. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating, as I said, and this comes back to what I mentioned right at the beginning, that you have the 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 studies and whatever else, but then it's anecdotally. And the fact that you guys, for example, have shifted and changed your training towards mm. focusing on, on the behavioral side of things. Um, yeah. It's just indicative of, of, of where we're actually at. And I think it's a lot less easy to talk about other forms of addiction, like pornography, like you mentioned, than mm. it is substance, even though like for someone to admit to either form of addiction would be difficult, but for us to have the conversations in the community, um, mm it's it's still a lot more i think taboo to address that side of things yeah the level of stigma i think is completely different mm. um but i think it's so just on addictions um 
um, I feel like we should talk about pornography addiction first, um, because it, I guess I, I feel like um, it's it's really important to bring it up. So just to give you some stats, last year after Ramadan, it, I think it makes perfect sense. So last Ramadan, just after Ramadan, for about a month after Ramadan, our um, most our half our inquiries were about pornography addiction, and half of those were from men and half were from women, which is really interesting. And if you think about it, actually, it makes sense that it's after Ramadan that it's um, it's a higher incidence. And that's because in Ramadan, you try and give up your addictions. She sounds locked up, that's why. Right? <laughs> she sounds exactly. back out straight after Ramadan, but yeah. I mean, this year, we were also, Shaitan was locked up, but so were we. Um, but either way, um, after Ramadan, um, it's like once you fail once, you feel like that's it. You feel terrible and you feel terrible about yourself. And that's when you then come to MYH because you, you've got an addiction or you even realize you have an addiction at that point. Mm. Um, and you just feel so low and your self-esteem is so low. And it's one of those issues that has so much stigma around it. It's one of the things that people just don't talk about, particularly women do not talk about pornography addiction at all. So, um, so I think it's really important for us to kind of raise that and say, actually, it is an issue in our community. We can tell you that definitely from MYH. Um, MYH is not the specialist in preventing those issues. I think that's where the community needs to come in and say, okay, what's happening? Why are our children going through this? And what can we do about it? I think that that would be a really good thing for mosques, madrasas, parents to kind of think up and, and work on uh, because we know it's an issue. Um, but then on your, on your thing about phones and um, that sort of thing, I think one really good way of thinking about it is just to think about yourself. I mean, I have definitely done a Netflix thing where I'm watching Breaking Bad and then the next episode comes on and the next episode comes on and basically all of a sudden it's four o'clock in the morning and I've got to wake up for three hours and you go to work the next day and you're a little bit destroyed and everyone's like are you all right and you can't tell them why you're not okay because you've just watched Breaking Bad because you couldn't be bothered to just press the off button because it yeah. just auto and the thing is, if as adults, we still kind of have that sort of thing happen where we're just on Twitter for way too long, all of a sudden, oh, it's been an hour, it's dinner time, and I haven't even, like, I've just been on Twitter for this last hour. If that's how it is for adults, just imagine what it's like for, for children. So I think mm. it's really easy to understand why that happens with kids. We've all been sleep deprived because of social media before. I think we understand what that feels like. It's just then if you're a child and you then don't have the resources to be able to deal with that in the daytime, and it's not great for school. It's not great for... You're just saying that we as adults have a better poker face. I yeah, think. basically. Basically. I mean, it is interesting when you watch kids, you know, like give them some sugar and then, you know, a few minutes later, you see them running around the room and you think, actually... Why don't adults do that? <laughs> yeah, seriously. You can spoon sugar into your mouth and probably you're having the same reaction in your body, yeah. but you're not running around everywhere. We're just better at that poker face. We're just better at kind of keeping it inside and pretending we're fine, but we're yeah. not actually... <laughs> So I, I've just thought of, of, of one more thing I actually wanted to ask you. Um, I realise we haven't we haven't done the the your own story stuff. We might need to do that another time, just in the interest of time. But what I did want to say is that with regards to everything you just mentioned, I think it's it it makes perfect sense in terms of like looking at you know post Ramadan there's a spike in people dealing with porn addiction, whatever else. I think that we are slowly beginning to normalise conversations around. Uh, around all of these things but i still feel like there is an element of guilt and shame that comes with with whatever it is and and, and being able to admit and acknowledge that you have a problem or you need help or whatever it might be and i think on one level as well because like our community is generally quite small um there there is always that fear that like you you call up the helpline and it's your cousin on the other line just going oh Ahmed, what's going on what are you doing why, why are you calling do you, do 
you know what I mean? Like there is that fear uh, ultimately. Like for example, let's say I had an issue and I wanted to call MYH. Like although you, you told me just now that you don't answer calls, like I would still yeah. constantly be petrified that it's going to be Zora on the other end of the line just going, oh, hey, Salim, yeah. we just did a podcast. What's going on? Um, <laughs> but uh, like how, not, I, I mean, yeah, how can you give people assurances about the, the anonymity and the fact that, that it will be protected? And I don't mean from a pers- perspective of, oh, you're going to leak their details to the press yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. But just like, you know, th- there's, that, there's that fear that, oh, you know, the, the caller is going to, I mean, the, the counselor is going to get together yeah. and be like, oh, you won't believe who just called mm-hmm. me. You won't mm-hmm. believe what this guy just said. You won't believe whose husband done, did this and blah, blah, blah. Because that's human nature, right? And we all kind of gossip whether we like it or not, whether it's right or wrong. But especially in this space, I guess, where the stakes are so high, um, yeah. like what kind of assurances can you give people? So several things. Um, one thing is just practically, if you're going to call the helpline and you want to be completely anonymous, you can call and just give them a fake name. So just say, my name's Adam and um, I want to talk about whatever. And actually that will never, like no one will ever know who you are. Even the helpline officer themselves won't know who you are. Just give them a fake name. And we actually say to people, we do ask people what your name is, just so that when you're talking, you're not saying, you know, hello, Mr. X or whatever. You're just yeah. saying we ask for a first name, but we also say you can give us a fake name if you want to. That's absolutely fine. And that helps to protect your identity because we don't store things like people's phone numbers or stuff like that. We don't keep that on our records. So uh, so basically, you can just call one for one your number if you feel like it. That helps also. It doesn't, MYH's number doesn't show up on your phone bill, so nobody else will know that you called. But you can absolutely call, just give a fake name, and that's all it takes to be completely anonymous, even from the team taking the calls, let alone from myself. So that's one one thing. But the other thing is actually um, that kind of stuff is stuff we really proactively think about when it comes to recruitment. So there is actually a question in our helpline officer recruitment, which is um, what would you do? It's a scenario based thing. What would you do if you uh, were given an email uh, or you were answered a phone uh, and you realized that you know who this person is? And there is one right answer to that question. And that is absolutely that you do not deal with that inquiry. So, and, and even with email, emails that we give people, we don't, do, we don't give email addresses to the rest of the team. It's just the one person who's opening the help inbox who even sees that email address, which is really important. So we do ask, and it's really important that helpline officers then also self uh, kind of identify and say, well, actually, I know this person. That means that I have no business being uh, talking to them because if they wanted to talk to me, they would have talked to me. So they're not reaching out to the helpline. So it's somebody else who can take that query, which is important. Um, and the other thing is just that respect. So one thing we do in training is we talk about different styles of questioning. Like how do you help people through questioning? And um, one thing we talk about uh, and practice quite a lot is helpline officers asking questions because of curiosity. We don't do curiosity questions. So it might be, for example, you've got this scenario and you're thinking, you know, oh my goodness, this is like um, really interesting for some reason or the other and you're curious about something but we don't do questions just because it's a curiosity thing it's got to be about the client it's got to be about that caller on the end of the phone and what will actually help them and i think that respect really extends to how we talk about people even behind the scenes there is not a case where you know and i think that's a a culture thing within myh we do not make fun of any issue at all and that's because if you think about it like let's say even if there's something that you consider completely minor and it can be really hard for your brain sometimes when you're going from like a super serious case of you know child sexual abuse for example and then suddenly you're speaking to somebody who might have an issue that you consider slightly less important or slightly less i I don't know um slightly less bad basically 
Um, but the way we look at it is if you had a broken leg and if I had a broken leg, just because yours is more broken than mine doesn't mean that mine doesn't hurt. And so we really look at it like no problem is too small, no problem is too big, whatever is coming in, we treat it with just the same respect. So it might be that different clients have different thresholds, but whatever that caller is calling with, that is the most important issue in the world to them. And that's how we treat people. And I think that's really important to MOH's culture. And honestly, I think if we didn't have that, we shouldn't exist. And I'm really glad that we do because I think clients deserve that kind of level of respect for sure. And and to address, you might have you might have mentioned it, um, but I think it's important to kind of uh, push on it a little bit further. So, in terms of getting over the hump of shame, guilt, uh, fear, whatever else, how 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 do you see people being able to kind of um, get to that place? Well, I think it's um, I think it's small steps. I think first identifying it in your own mind, being able to say whatever it is that you're going through, and yeah. often that to do when you're typing than when you're talking. So I'd say to start off with, um, a good thing to do is to just do an anonymous chat because that's, it's easier to type something. You don't have to say out loud what your issue is. Um, mm. And then I think progress on a little bit more and see whether you can get more help. I always think therapy is a good idea. The great thing about therapy is it's your own space. It's just you and one counselor. And that just means that you don't have to worry about what anybody thinks. You can try things out, see how things feel. But there, is a, there is a cost implication to therapy though, right? There is a, there is, and it, although it depends, so um, it depends on what sorts of sorts of therapy you're looking for. Um, one thing about MYH is I think our helpline officers can help find the kind of help that you need. But in terms of cost, there are some low cost options. So there's um, IAPT, the local government, um, uh, sorry, local council uh, services, which are, they're designed to be quicker. So you don't need to get in touch with your GP. You just contact them directly and they should be contacting you within a week and then placing you somewhere within a couple of weeks, which is, which is the theory. I think people have had different um, experience of that. So when I last used IAPT, it was fine. I was in a group therapy setting within three weeks, I think it was. Um, but definitely we've had clients on the helpline who've tried and they've said it's sort of six weeks or longer, which can be really hard when you have an anxiety issue or something mm. like that. Um, so I think it's worth trying that. But then also we do have a few people who offer low cost counseling, where it's just sort of like £10 an hour as opposed to sort of 60, which which also helps. Yeah. OK. Um, I, I'm, I, as I said, I'm cautious of time. Uh, I, I feel like we could do like three more hours of this. This is really sure. this is really interesting and, and, and I think enlightening and, and important as well. Um, and as I said, we didn't even get to talk about your own kind of journey towards working with MYH and, and like you've you've mentioned you know the fact that you've you're in therapy and that you've got anxiety and whatever else and I think I wanted to explore that a little bit further but time is is, is not going to let us unfortunately we'll, we'll do it another day but I'll just say everybody please go to therapy it's wonderful <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the a- a- advertising for for 10 pound yeah. um, therapy <laughs> people can find it per hour um but no, thank you very much, Laura. This, is, this has genuinely been um, exactly what I hoped it would be, which is just a really fascinating conversation about mental health and MIH and, and just where things are at. And like whenever we've spoken in passing about MIH and just what the latest stuff is, I'm always, um, I think it's, it's really important and, and so necessary to our community, the service that you guys provide. And, and the fact that without, you know, organizations like MIH, like God knows where the state of, of conversation around mental health in the Muslim community would be um, all these years. So uh, it, I take that and I'll pass it on to the team. Um, and also it's been really nice um, to see, particularly in the last few months, the community be so kind of 
I feel like we've got a lot of allies out there and I think TMV has always been a, a great advocate of mental health. So thanks for doing that also over this time, so consistently as well. No, of course. Thank you. Um, well, on that cheery note, I think let's, let, let's, let's wrap it up. <laughs> Thank you very much, Zora. <laughs> thanks, Ali. All right. Take care. So that was my conversation with Zora. Um, hope you guys found it interesting and enlightening. Um, I think there's so much to unpack when it comes to the topic of mental health, and and especially uh, it's it's always interesting. I, I you know I keep going towards the word fascinating. I apologize, guys. I think I've, I've mentioned before it's like my go-to adjective, but uh, screw it. I'm still fasting, um, although this is going out after Ramadan, but I'm recording like two days left of Ramadan. But yeah, I think it's fascinating when you hear some of the um, case studies and and the stuff that people are going through and like the complexity of a lot of these cases like often it, it can be very easy to brush aside people's problems and minimize people's problems but when you kind of get into it and you start trying to problem solve and, and, and hearing it it's just there's people are going through so much and, and I think Zora said something very um, enlightening at the end which was that each person's individual like you can't compare like for like like you can't compare a hairline fracture to like a complete break when it comes to a leg but when it comes to mental health and and when it comes to people's kind of problems you you most definitely have to prioritize and treat whatever they're dealing with as the most important thing at that time because ultimately that's what it is for them and you know you can think back to problems you've had in your life growing up and you always think at like a young age that oh the world's going to come to an end because i failed my this exam or xyz or whatever and in hindsight you look back and realize that actually you know life goes on but try and tell yourself in that moment that you know your your friends laughing at you isn't a big deal or whatever it might be um and and you 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 can't look beyond it so i think it's it's really um important and as i said it, it it's it's such a it's a duty on all of us i believe in the community and, and myh is just one of the organizations that have taken that burden from our shoulders but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to support them and um support all the organizations that are kind of dealing with mental health and as um as she said as well like something that we try to do on the muslim vibe is is give prominence and have those conversations as much as possible um and and what's what's amazing is that we're seeing the response from people when we are doing this um that people are really um really kind of responding and 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 are are opening up and and highlighting the fact that i think we've probably done a disservice for for quite some time um to this area um but yeah that's it for another podcast thank you guys for listening uh thank you for subscribing if you haven't already subscribed then please do and be sure to give us a five star rating on whatever app you use um and that is it for another podcast guys take care and stay safe